Hello and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host, Brock Wilbur, the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everybody? Um, If you've been paying attention to our website or national news, you've probably seen that we did a large piece last week about the Alamo Draft House uh, that has garnered, let's call it some some attention, some attention nationally, Um, not just uh, from readers but also from the theater chain itself. A lot of moving parts there, a lot of things happening. Um, The piece was written by myself and um, my friend Abby, who is our film editor. Uh, We spent 50-ish days working on this sort of day and night, and it is just good to have it out in the world because it feels like a, a big, heavy, burning piano has left our chests. Um... It is good to not be being crushed by that right now. Uh, it is good to have it out in the world. Uh, it is hard to uh, to sometimes take pride in your work as journalists uh, when you are working on something that's just about how much people got hurt. Uh, it is a tricky thing if you are if you're a writer and you finish your novel, like that's fun. And if you're a painter and you finish your painting, and that's neat. And if you're a journalist that finishes your a chronicle of a decade of abuse by a corporation against its own employees. Um, you're like, neat. Uh, it's difficult to find a way to unwind. Uh, so when we, um, when it was time to, to, to set it loose in the world, I went to Abby's house and we went into the backyard and we put a laptop between us and uh, we both reached out and hit the publish button at the same time. And then we each had a whiskey and looked at the tree line in her backyard and turned off our phones and, and said nothing for like 30 minutes after it was out. Just, just sort of like taking a, a, a breath, a pause, a, a modern era vacation from the world for a few minutes, just to turn off and be like, okay, like that, there's the sky. And here is me breathing again, like a person. And that's, that is our reward for having done this. So, um, but the real reward is is uh, thanks to you and, and, and the community and the incredible response this has had. Um, we've sort of been informed that there's a lot of changes that are happening very, very quickly here to protect Draft House employees uh, across the country uh, and stuff that'll come out in the weeks to come. Uh, everyone took it very, very seriously because, of, of course, this is uh, something that is... Uh, God awful, just really scary and awful on every level. So, um, uh, to everyone that read it and shared it, thank you for doing so. And also like, uh, sorry for us inflicting, uh, just like more trauma on you for having read it. Like, uh, it is, it is a difficult piece to read and, uh, anyone that made it through all 7,000 words, we really appreciate. Anyway, on uh, today's show, we're going to talk to Sly James, the former mayor of Kansas city about his uh, new book. But before that, Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Over the course of the last few months, the modish power pop outfit that is Brandon Phillips and The Condition have been doing a summer single series with a new track from June through September. 
While all of the songs thus far have been barn burner jams, the latest, Veronica, is a quieter, more introspective piano-based ballad. Given that Summer Singles 2020 wraps up next month, this is the perfect track to drop right now, because it feels like that quiet song the band plays right before letting it rip one last time. It's a stone-cold gem. Check it out, and if you like it, you can head over to the Brandon Phillips and the Condition Bandcamp page to buy it and support the band. While the group doesn't have any performances scheduled, you can check out BP and TC members Julie Bernson, Brandon Phillips, and Adam Phillips, along with Michelle Bacon, in another of Brandon's myriad musical projects, the electro-dance pop outfit Other Americans, when they play Lemonade Park this Saturday, August 22nd, along with Emmeline Twist and Dan Jones in the Squids. Here's Veronica. Sad in the sadness like ladders Set in a shoebox under the bed We wrestle with minus till you change the locks And I left with the things that I said Don't want you to feel like you're under attack I ran from your love, now I gotta get back I said it before, but I never said it to someone.
And now here's our discussion with Sly James about his new book. Uh, Mayor Sly James, welcome to the show. How are you? Brock, I'm doing super. How about yourself, my friend? I am doing as good as anyone can be doing out there. Uh, what have you been up to these days? Well, you know, it's been a very interesting year since I've been out of office. Uh, in that year, um, I'm, I've been very happy to work with my former chief of staff, Joni Wickham. Uh, we formed Wickham and James, uh, not Wickham and James, it's just Wickham James. Wickham James Strategies and Solutions is the full name. Uh, and with kind of a loose purpose of offering services, advice, consulting, strategies to solve problems in the areas of education, politics, public policy, um, different types of things that we still have an affinity for after having been in office for eight years. We didn't want to just go out and start trying to make money. We wanted to do things that still carried some meaning for us. So we've been doing that for a year. It's been very good fun. It's been successful. Um, we're both in situations now where we can't complain about much because things are going well for us. And there's so many people where things aren't going well for them. Uh, so we both decided that we would cede our time uh, of complaints and gnashing of teeth and anxiety to people who have real issues, uh, which, is, which aren't us. You've just written and released a book. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, The Opportunity Agenda. Uh, you know, it's an interesting path. Uh, a friend, Winston Fisher, found me, actually. We, we basically came in from New York, sat in my office. We talked politics for an hour and a half or two, and uh, he left. And then a month later, I got a call saying, hey, I'm going to write a book. Do you want to write a book with me? And I said, what are we going to write about? And we talked about that, and I said, I'm in. So we set about on this path to him in New York, me in Kansas City, and getting together periodically and writing this book. Um, and, and basically this book is an opportunity that we saw to try to convince the Democratic Party that rather than focus on the rebound of reacting to Donald Trump and things that he's done, and, and by rebound it means, we mean that, you know, he does something, we talk about that, and on that basis Democrats get into office and then Democrats are in office and do something, and the Republicans talk about that, and then they get in office, and we just keep bouncing back and forth. But all the while, all this political bouncing back and forth is taking place, the real needs of people are not being addressed. We wanted to write a book that said to people that what uh, said to people in power that uh, policy should be directed towards making sure that people's problems are solved, and that's what we did. Now, also, uh, a large chunk of the book also deals with issues around Ferguson. Uh, it, 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 Ferguson feels like it just happened uh, because we are still in that cultural moment and still dealing with all the same problems, but it has been a number of years. Like, um, what, what are your thoughts and feelings on Ferguson and, and how it has affected where we are now? Well, you know... Ferguson, first of all, Ferguson's in St. Louis. Uh, we're in Kansas City, um, um, and, and which is, you know, not that far away, but still the impact of it is, is still very prevalent. I think the problem is is that Ferguson was simply a 
more visible outward manifestation of situations that have occurred over decades. The issues in the black community aren't new. It didn't start with Ferguson. didn't start with any of that stuff. Uh, the only difference between Ferguson and what had previously been happening is, is that that stuff, some of that stuff was caught on tape. Uh, the difference now is that it is visible to people who previously uh, didn't believe that it was happening, didn't know it was happening because they didn't see it. Uh, the difference now is that everybody's got a phone in their pocket. Every phone has a camera and people use it. That's what that, that was the thing that I noticed about Ferguson when it was happening that I just uh, night by night couldn't believe was that it I I'm from Los Angeles and I feel like in Los Angeles like police have a, a level of like media training where they know what to expect about what's been filmed and what is not and you saw the cops from Ferguson doing all these things as if they were completely unaware that people were live streaming them on the internet and you were just like. What, how do you not know that other that millions of people are seeing what you're doing right now as a bad faith actor? <laughs> well, because most people don't look at it as bad faith acting. That's the problem. I mean, don't forget the civil rights movement. A lot of that is captured on film. What happened to John Lewis was captured on film. All of that stuff is captured on film to a large extent. The desegregation of schools in Alabama captured on film. Didn't seem to move the needle because nobody really cared. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that to be real blunt about it, you know, most people didn't care. It didn't affect their life, you know, um, so it wasn't a big issue. But the, the, the issues that are out there now um, are so brutal and there's so much activism as a result that there's been two major changes in this whole situation. Number one, the ability for regular people to capture everyday situations on video. And, and here, I'll give you a good example. I forget exactly where it was, but I think it might have been in, in either North or South Carolina, where there was a report of a young man who had been a, 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 a detained by the police. He apparently tried to run away, and he was shot in the back. And right. the police report basically said, you know, he grabbed for the gun, and he was wrestling with it, et cetera, et cetera, and he got shot, and they immediately rendered aid. What they didn't know was the other dude, some other guy, had captured it on his camera, and it took a month or two before that came out. But once the video came out, what you saw was the police report was a total and complete lie. Right. Well, those police reports were out there a long time ago and talking about a whole lot of stuff. There just wasn't any video. So that's change number one. Change number two, now white people are out marching in some of these things. That's a significant <laughs> change. No, I'm yeah. serious. No, I, I know you are. The 60s. I grew up in the 60s. And the bottom line was is that there was a huge drug problem, but that drug problem was apparently only in black neighborhoods. Once it started being known that it was in white neighborhoods, now we've got to do something about it. Those are the major differences, is when the majority population sees and figures out that it happens to them and it affects them, now we get movement. But the whole problem with all of this is, the situation cannot be resolved by superficial policies. What has to happen is that if we're going to do things that are going to avoid those types of marches, activities, problems, then we have to have change that is meaningful. And some of those changes are things like there has to be economic equity. Uh, right. People need the opportunity to improve their economic situation. And they need the ability to rise out of poverty and into the middle class. And, and that requires a number of levers to be pulled. Education, childcare, 
uh, skills training, uh, all sorts of different things, access to capital, affordable benefits, all the things we talk about in the book. That's what the book is about, is giving people an opportunity <clears throat> to change their plot, their, their plight in life by providing them not with a handout, not necessarily a big government program, but with these, the things that are necessary to provide them with an opportunity to change their life with dignity. People don't want handouts. They want to be able to earn what they've got, but they want a fair and equitable playground from which to earn it. And that's the problem that we've got today, and that's what the book's about. So when I first moved to Kansas City a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I, who were both national political journalists at that time, uh, one of the first things that we went to in town was we were invited to your last uh, State of the City speech. Uh, huh. and th there was this moment where and it was the first time I'd seen you. It's the, uh, really the first time I, I became enga engaged in the local politics beyond the work that I've done with uh, Jason Kander. Uh, and uh, there is a part of that speech that I will never forget where you went from talking about all the things that we were hopeful about, about like the airports and, and the economy and so on and so forth. And then we hit the issue of gun violence, and you just very straight up and very truthfully were like, this is just a goddamn problem. And like, you, were, you were very clear on, like, well, we have a real issue here, and this is the biggest yeah. thing facing our city, and we've got to do something. Between then and now, do you have any different ideas on how we should be handling the gun violence epidemic? Have, have your ideas evolved or are there still a basic set of ideas that you think would work? Because obviously something like Operation Legend is not going to fix this. <laughs> Operation Legend is like a lot of things that we do. We wait until there's a big problem and then we come in and try and fix it. The problem has to be avoided, not fixed. And, and, yeah, there's a lot of things. There's long-term things that we can do in terms of making sure that no child enters kindergarten two years behind. Uh, at the age of five, you shouldn't be two years behind anything. But that's what happens when you're black, when you're brown, when you're poor. And, and by poor, that includes white as well. But poor kids, black kids, and brown kids often don't have the advantages necessary in order for them to start off their life at the age of five in school on an even level field. That's long-term that has to be addressed through early childhood education and quality pre-K uh, pre and also quality uh, childcare leading up to the quality pre-K. That's number one. Number two, there has to be a change in how we teach kids in school so that they know that they have options in life and that there's a path for them. Instead of simply teaching everybody the same stuff until they graduate high school and go to college, and instead of only having STEM programs and, and those types of really sophisticated programs in suburban schools that can have it, every middle school kid should be introduced to as many different jobs and professions as possible through field trips, through visiting, through mentorships, et cetera, so that they can say, I had no idea that there were women engineers. I had no idea that there were women car mechanics. I had no idea that I could learn how to work on jet planes. I had no idea that this is what it takes to be whatever it is that it takes to be. And then you start tailoring the curriculums that they're being given in school to those types of paths so that they see the connection between what they're learning 
and where they want to be so that they don't just blow subjects off because they don't see what the hell algebra has to do with their life. Number three, in that same vein, seniors in high school could avail themselves of things like the Rankin Institute in St. Louis or P-TECH in New York where you can leave that, that last year of high school, even your junior year under some circumstances, and enter into a program that will provide you with all the technical skills and knowledge that you need for specific types of jobs, and you walk out with an associate degree and a job right off the bat, all right? Not every kid mm-hmm. is going to go to college. Not every kid should, but every kid at least wants to have an opportunity to do what they want. You can learn woodworking, or you can become a computer whiz with cars. Uh, but those things are taught with certificates, not necessarily degrees, and you can get there. And then on the political scale, frankly, if you want to know the truth of the matter, America does not have the guts to do what needs to be done, which is to say, I'm sorry, not everybody in this country should have a damn gun, period. I'm sorry. It's just it, it, you can't have it both ways. If you say everybody should have a gun at free, unfettered, then you know what? You can give a gun to a one-year-old in their first birthday because everybody should have one, right? There's no restrictions. But if you believe that there are restrictions, shouldn't there be restrictions on making sure that people who've had an incident of domestic violence shouldn't have a damn gun? If you know that there's restrictions and you've got people who've shown any level of violence at all, shouldn't you not have a gun? If you know they've got a, a mental health issue, should they have a gun? But in the state of Missouri, you can, anybody can damn near have a gun. If you're 18, you can have a gun. And when the police pull people over and they got four 18, 19-year-olds in a car and they got guns and they haven't committed a crime, they can't do a damn thing about it. Now, what do you think four 18-year-olds in a car with a gun at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night are doing? They're not going to visit their mother in the nursing home. So what are those guns for? But that's what happens. We don't have the guts to do what is necessary. People want to see the violence end. The violence is not going to end as long as we have people who have no regard for their life or somebody else's life, and they've got free and unfettered access to a gun. Now, a lot of people are going to get mad at me, get all pissed off, you're anti-gun, you hate the Second Amendment. No, I don't. But I don't think that everybody should have a gun, and I don't think that everybody should have a gun without having a background check. And I think that if you have a gun, you ought to have some sort of training to go with it, and there ought to be some way of saying, you know what, you're not a guy that should have an AR-15. I'm sorry. We're just not going to let you have an AR-15. Which also the question arises, how are you using, how are you using that for hunting? How bad of a hunter do you have to be to need an AR-15 to get a deer? Like it's just, I don't uh, use it for hunting. I use it for sport. It's a neat gun. I go out and shoot stuff with it. <laughs> Whatever, you know, AR, I, I had an AR-15, but it was actually called an M-16, and it was in the Marine Corps back in the Vietnam era, and right. that's exactly the gun there, and the reason that we had M-16s was because they were lethal killing machines. That's what they were. They were the most lethal weapon on the battlefield at that time. But and, that and your situation that you bring up about, like, teenagers in the car with guns also applies to the fact that, like, Nationwide, you you see it repeatedly that like black men, uh, uh, even the ones that, like especially here that have like a concealed carry permit or a gun permit, keep getting shot by the police, and then like 
the NRA is always suspiciously quiet about that. It's like, oh, that was a legal gun owner that was just executed uh, by a cop. Like, where is your outrage about that gun owner? <laughs> well, you can't – if that's not going to help the NRA's mission, because right. <laughs> the NRA's mission primarily is to make sure that the gun manufacturers have as many guns sold as possible. And one mm. of the ways that you do that is you tell a bunch of white people you need a gun to protect yourself from the black people who are going to break into your house and steal your stuff. So everybody should have a gun for protection. You're a law-abiding white person. Make sure you've got a gun that will protect you against those, those people that are marauding through the streets and want your stuff. So Which, We just embarrassed ourselves on the national scale with that couple in uh, St. Louis that were aiming guns at protesters as they walked through their neighborhood peacefully. And it's just like, come on, man, what do we do? <laughs> you want to know, you know, want to know something? If that had been in any neighborhood on the east side of Kansas City and the same situation occurred and people stood out front of their house with those guns and the police showed up, one of them probably would have been shot. Okay. Right. <laughs> that, I'm just saying. You're, just you're saying, right. <laughs> I'm just saying because it's a whole different ballgame. But, you know, getting back to the issues of the book, and, and I do want to talk about that because I think the book is important, and I think the reason that we're in this place now is because we have not looked at the issues that we talk about. We have not answered the problems that people have day to day, particularly women when it comes to their children and having to make a choice between am I going to take care of my child, find somebody who can take care of my child that I can afford, or and go to work, or do I have to quit my job in order to make sure that my child has what they need? And sure. face it, it's not the guy that quits. It's the woman that quits nine times out of ten. Or in even worse situations, there is no guy, and the woman has a choice to take care of her children or take a low-paying job where she can't afford to pay anybody to take care of her kids, and she doesn't have any relatives that will do it for free. Those are the problems that we have. That needs to be resolved so that women can go back into the workforce and be productive so that when they retire, they have some Social Security saved up and some Medicare saved up that they can actually use. And that's not happening now to the extent. We're not going to stop kids from turning into marauding teenagers when they start to fall so far behind by third grade that they never catch up and then they have no future. We have to address that issue. We can't expect every guy to go to Harvard and get a degree. And then we have to help entrepreneurs who build our businesses by making sure that they have access to capital. And that's even more acute when it comes to women and minorities because they have less access to capital than anybody. Our book is about making sure that everybody in this country has an opportunity to become better and to do it without necessarily having to rely on the old tried-and-true democratic process of make government bigger. It doesn't have to be bigger, but it sure as hell has to be smarter. And these things that we're talking about are smarter than what's on the table now. So here's a question, and I'm not sure if you'll answer it, but if you want to play ball, I would love to hear. If you were still mayor today, what is something that you would be doing differently? for the city than what is happening now? Well, there's a number of things, I guess, and I don't, <laughs> want, this to, I don't, want, this to, I don't want this to sound in any way like any sort of criticism of Quentin Lucas, because sure. at the end of the day, he's got his agenda and I've got mine. My right. agenda was four E's, uh, 
number one, I would continue to move the city towards data-based decision-making because with data you can make decisions that have more benefit and impact than making decisions based on subjective politics. Number two, I, would have, I may have taken a different position with regards to the federal agents coming in. Uh, to help Obviously, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, you know, there's, there's ways that you can do that and ways that you can't. And based on what he said about it, there, that's not the way that you can. And, and, and if he wasn't made aware, then somebody dropped the ball somewhere. Um, yeah, that, would, that seems to be the thing is that, like, uh, they asked for a bunch of resources and what they got instead was this surprise. And he, you know, you can't tell them no, I guess, because you don't have that power. So, yeah, that one's confusing and tricky, and I, I, I understand. Yeah, but, like, yeah, I, I think that he's on the same page with you. <laughs> you can't necessarily tell them no, but if you can plan it in such a way that there is some benefit to it and there's not right. a surprise and it doesn't look like another layer of Gestapo walking through your neighborhood. <laughs> That's not what this should be about. Right. Okay? One thing that I would definitely do, I had started talking to Stan Schoen down in St. Louis about Rankin, and I really would love to see a Rankin Institute in Kansas City because I think it would help a lot of kids that otherwise might not be saved. Uh, I'd love to see that type of a program here in Kansas City. Now, the, the community colleges pick up a little bit here and a little bit there, but Rankin Institute is totally dedicated to a number of different areas where they have uh, the ability to really skill kids up and connect them with work. So they work part of the, they work for a few months and they train for a few months and right. they're paid during those times. So that, they, and they walk out of those situations into good paying jobs. <clears throat> Excuse me. I really would have liked to have gotten that done, but didn't. And the thing that bothers me the most, the failure that I, I still lament is the, is our inability to have gotten comprehensive, universal, high-quality pre-K for every kid in this city. I think we failed our children by doing that. And I think we're going to continue to turn out kids that are born in poverty and never get out of poverty. And because of that, they are going to have difficulties either with crime or low earnings or shorter life expectancies. I would continue uh, to fight for children and quality pre-K just as I continue to work with Turn the Page, an entity I started in 2012 to help with third-grade reading proficiency. I believe that we have to do things for our kids, and I think that the only way to get those things done is some adult in a political, governmental situation has to advocate for them because there's nobody else that really is advocating for them in a way. Of, I mean, there's some nonprofits that are doing it, but here's the thing. Money doesn't flow to kids who are too young to vote and adults who are too young for anybody to really care about until it is time to vote. The right. money flows to the people who are producing tax dollars, and then the lobbyists go and find ways to make sure that it flows to the people who really could do without some of it. You know what I mean? Mm. But at the end of the day, I'd continue to work on the same things that we started working on when I went into office because they were working. Governmental efficiency, uh, working on employment issues, education, 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 and and finding ways to bring skill training and skill sets into this city 
for kids to be able to take advantage of and get good paying jobs. That's what I would do now. And I'm not saying that those things aren't being done, but that's what we were doing and that's what I will continue to do. Finally, I'd love to ask you the question of like, of your many years being mayor of Kansas City, what is your favorite small story? My favorite small story? Yeah, your favorite little event that you're just like, I just love this. I think about it all the time. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, there's so darn many. I think that uh, here's one. After the long fight and the long argument to get streetcar up and running, to be standing there on the very first day with all the people out in front of Union Station that came to see it, and I'm greeted by a group of high school kids, young high school kids that had come down specifically to see it, and I just had a conversation with them, and I said, you know why we're doing this, don't you? I said, it's not just about having a streetcar that runs up and down the street. And they said, no, you know, it, we like it. Why are you doing it? I said, because if we do these types of things that are very popular and very utilitarian for people your age and older, uh-huh. you'll come back to Kansas City when you finish college, and you'll stay here and raise your family. And there was a teacher there, and there were some parents that were with them, and they hugged me because of it, because their dream is to have their kids go to college wherever they want, but to come home. And that was probably one of the things that I won't forget, because that's important. We need, you know, the economic, the currency of economic development is not money, it's not incentives. The currency of economic development is talent, getting talent into your city. If we can find the next guy that's going to invent the next Amazon, if we can find the next group family that comes in and builds a new halls, or the next group of people that builds a DST, or the next group of people that do a sermon, that's what you're looking for. It's not, it's not trying to lure the existing Amazon into your city, although a lot of people think that's a good idea. Believe me, it has an upside and a serious downside. Uh-huh. The idea <laughs> is to get people right here in this city to have the ability, the desire, and the resources to build it right here in Kansas City and stay here and employ Kansas Cityans. That's what, that's what it's all about. But you can't do that if you have a city that people don't want to live in. Tell us again one last time uh, the name of your book and where people can get it. The Opportunity Agenda, a bold democratic plan to grow the middle class. Certainly you can get it at Amazon. I believe Barnes & Noble and some of the other bookstores have it. And if you get it on Amazon and you like it, please give us a review. But it's out there and available, and we'd appreciate it if you'd pick it up and read it. But even more importantly, we'd appreciate it if you would become Opportunity Democrats. And by Opportunity Democrats, I mean people who will argue for opportunity not necessarily far right or far left, but for things that will actually address the day-to-day problems in people's lives in such a way that they have the opportunity to grow and be stronger and move out of poverty into middle class, and if you're in the middle class, to move up. Those are the things that this book is about, and that's what we hope to accomplish. What's next for Sly James? You know what? I'm having a blast. I'm working with Joni. I love her best. She's a great partner, friend, 
um, and we're doing stuff. We're, we're doing the type of work we want. I'm doing some stuff with Harvard on education, with Bloomberg, Harvard on data for their coaching for mayors. I uh, had a great student in San Pedro, uh, Mexico, uh, doing some data coaching with them, and in Minneapolis until all that stuff broke out, and in Newark. Um, but uh, we're loving that. We're doing some work on some tech issues with a company. I'm still involved in African American Mayors Association. I'm doing some work. We're doing both of us are working with Kaufman Foundation. Uh, we have some governmental clients. We have uh, and some uh, private clients. And uh, you know, we're doing a little bit of sideline politics and some communications work. Uh, we're just having a blast. We've got a lot of stuff on our plate. I'm doing mediations and still doing that, which I like to do. But we've got a lot of stuff to keep us busy, and we're just going to keep doing it. We're in control of our lives here now. And, uh, you know, we're having fun, and uh, we're able to make enough to survive, and uh, we're able to do things that we think matter, and that's all we wanted to do. can't ask for a whole lot more than that and watch our kids grow up and grandkids. Just wanted to thank you for helping make the city over the last couple of years in the sort of place that uh, me and my wife living in Los Angeles were able to visit one weekend and we're like, this is the place we want to live now. Like, this, clearly your work has helped influence that. Thank you for all your work in the city and everything that you've done here. <laughs> thank you. But the last thing I want to say is is that there, I, 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 I came in and was able to get stuff done because of what Kay Barnes did when she was in office and, and some of what Manuel Cleaver did when he was in office. And what mm. we were able to do while I was in office was done by a team of people. My staff was outstanding. I had a great city manager, and, and our first council was really focused on making things happen. So we got things done because we worked together, and we can continue to build this city to whatever we want it to be if we work together. If we don't work together, we'll just start to slowly, completely tear it apart and start all over again. Don't let that happen. Thank you, Mayor. Appreciate you talking you. to us today. Hey, Brock, take you, my friend, and have a great day. Take care of your family, and please stay well and safe. Hey, if you ever want to come back on the show, just let me know. I would love to have you. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye. And that's been the Streetwise podcast uh, from The Pitch, Kansas City. You can follow our work at thepitchkc.com. Uh, support us, like us, tell us what you would like us to do on this show or who, you, who you'd like us to have on. We'd love to hear your recommendations. Uh, always appreciate you and uh, and what you do in, in just being there for us. Uh, even if you can't be there for us financially in these difficult times, uh, you, we certainly get it. Uh, everyone needs every every penny that they can pinch right now, so that that it matters just that you're here. Um, I'm Brock Wilbur. You can find me at Brock Wilbur on Twitter and most everywhere else. Uh, this is Ben Streetwise Kitchen, and we will make it through.